least started in chapter 24. Maybe should we should consider it starting in chapter 23. We know this is one of the major speeches because it does end the same way in 26.1 when Jesus had finished all these words. So he is considering this to be a speech, and I think he's continuing on the same basic uh, subject. You know, because he's talking about the idea of his return, and you don't know when he's going to come back, so you always need to be ready. And he gave that little story about the, the slave that is doing the right thing or not when his master returns. That was the last thing we dealt with in chapter 24. And he goes on to tell some parables that are a little more elaborate now as he's illustrating, you know, some things about his return. I'm wrong. Yeah, we've already yeah. Done I'm that. way wrong. Okay. Hang on. Have we done that? Yes. We've at least gone through 20. We're in 26. 28. No, 26 verse 17. Really? Yeah. Are so you I sure think in this not where is where my notes are, so this is I know we've done the parables. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't remember about my notes were not in chronological order. Alright, well. But all everything you were saying was sounding way too familiar. Did I did I say similar things each time? Yeah. So try twenty twenty six seventeen. Twenty six seventeen. I can do that. I fortunately I have those notes too, but I'm surprised I still have these in here. Yeah. Because that's where exactly where mine started is in 25. Are you sure? <laughs> mm -hmm. So. We did did I miss one or something? Probably. You did yeah, miss. What do you think, guys? Did we do 25? Yes. I did. I know we did. Okay. 25. I don't remember how much of it or how far we got. But. All right. Well, we'll do 2617 then. I can handle that as well. So. But it's a little different context. Uh, <laughs> now we're done with the parables. Yeah, we're done with the parables. <laughs> Raise that up the scene. And uh, we are into the last night of Jesus' life. Uh, we're preparing for that, uh, preparing to eat the Passover, which was a key element on this last night. And so perhaps we ought to do, read uh, chapter 26, verses 17 to 30. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. All right well-known events for us, but notice how Jesus' disciples ask him, where do you want us to prepare to eat the Passover? And Jesus has things well in order. He's calm, 
organized with what he is doing. Uh, um, you know, go into a certain into the city to a certain man. Here's what you say. You know what you do. This is kind of a summary of what he says. But you can tell that Jesus is not caught off guard. He's planned this out, and uh, he's organizing everything. Even though he's hours away from his arrest, he doesn't he doesn't seem phased uh, by that, or uh, you know, at his wit's end, or anything like that. So the evening comes, and they are there at the table. The Passover obviously was a meal, and uh, so they're eating that together. And Jesus drops the bombshell. What's that? Yes. Now, one thing you always have to remember when Jesus says that is the disciples don't think the same thing we think. We know what betrayal meant. You know, selling you for 30 pieces of silver. You know, well, that's, uh, you know, that's not what they probably thought. I mean, who knows what they thought he meant by betrayal. I wonder if they didn't think of an accidental. Betrayal. You know, one of you will end up doing something stupid and sabotaging this operation or whatever. I don't know. But what was their response? Not I, or is it I, or... Yeah. That's not Mindy. Uh-uh. <laughs> it looks a little, but... Uh, I think that's a good response on their part. I mean, it's good for us to think about the possibility, is it me, am I going to do that? I mean, rather than being overconfident and say, well, surely not me, you know, or I won't be me, maybe. They're, they're kind of questioning that. The thing that I often make the point, it, that I think is interesting, is they didn't all wheel around and say, it's Judas. We know it will be, you know. As you would have done in some classes in school, if the teacher says, you know, one of you is going to miss this, mess this whole production up. Well... There's times when everybody points to the same person. You know who the class clown is. You know who the one is. That if anybody's not going to get it right, it's going to be them. But they don't know that about Judas. Judas has not made it evident his behavior that he would be, you know, the prohibitive favorite for being betrayer or something like that. So, you know, they they're just all kind of wondering if it's them. And Judas, well, he probably feels like he pretty much got to make it look good. I mean, you know, he, he asked the same thing. Uh, and, and Jesus will, says to him, you said it yourself. But they don't seem to understand. So I don't know if others didn't hear Jesus say that, or if it wasn't clear what Jesus meant by that. But they don't seem to catch on to the idea of Judas being the betrayer. Now notice the other thing Jesus says in verse 23 and 24. You know, that it's one of the ones who had accepted you know, his hospitality in the most intimate way, you know, even using the same bowl to eat out of. I think the point is, you know, I mean, this is not an enemy. This is not a distant uh, friend. This is somebody he's sharing the most personal moments with who's going to turn around and stab him in the back. And as we know, he's already plotted to do it and already contracted with the chief priest for it. What do you think Judas must have thought? Somebody said he had ice water in his veins. I mean, how could you hear all of that and calmly and coolly just go out and finish the bargain? That amazes me. Do you think he'd already planned to finish the bargain that night? I don't know that for sure. I don't know that for sure, but it wouldn't surprise me. 
he'd already initiated it. He'd already initiated. We know that from chapter 26, uh, verses uh, 14 to 16. You know, one of the 12, you know, had contracted. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. But I don't know, I don't know how much he was zeroing in on this night or how much it just, he just realized, okay, this will be a good time. I'm not really sure how that was. But he was definitely looking for this opportunity because he wants to get the money. And clearly the chief priests are in readiness. I mean, he's able to go to them that night and they're able to put the plan in operation. So, I mean, their henchmen must at least not be more than a you know, cell phone call away or whatever. So comments and questions through 25. Why is he telling them this? Good question. I can think of a lot of reasons. I don't know if I know contextually the right reason. Like, so they wouldn't be surprised and think that something had gone terribly wrong? I think that's one thing, because he keeps warning them about things that are going to happen, I think, to get them mentally ready. Um, you know, it certainly is going to be a later evidence to Jesus, uh, you know, being aware of everything. Mm -hmm. You know, if he knew this already, why didn't he go somewhere else that night? I mean, knowing when this was going to happen, you would think he could have just decided to, you know, go somewhere he never went. Mm -hmm. Surely he could have found someplace. Even for him as his disciples. You know, the night's short. <laughs> you know, Judas is not going to look everywhere. He's not going to know where all to look. If they'd have known where all to look, they wouldn't have to have Judas. So, mm -hmm. but, so, I mean, it shows that. I don't know. What do you think? I don't see him trying to talk Judas out of it by telling this because that would have thwarted the whole plan. Yeah, I don't think he's trying to do that. In fact, he will tell him and John, it. you know, it's time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, he tries to push him. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, he says, what you do, do quickly. You know, come on. If you can, uh, you know, it's just like, wow. And, and again, I don't understand how Judas didn't, like, freak out or something. I don't think Judas thought this was ever going to happen. Yes, he didn't think that they were really going to kill Jesus. I agree, he probably right. I think he thought that Jesus would be able to do a miracle or something to overcome it. On the other hand, wonder what the uh, wonder what the rest of the story would have been in Judas's view if that happened. <laughs> I'd say he would be uh, dis discipled. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. You wonder what he's thinking. I, I don't really know. <laughs> and sometimes when you're greedy, you may not be thinking. You know, I, I want. I mean, sometimes, sometimes it's like you people are not very bright. You know about some of those things when you stop and think about. It. So, I don't know. Hmm. Well, you know, during the, Lord, during the Passover, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And, uh, you know, he takes this bread and he says, this is my body. There is no way 
that anybody understood him to be saying, this is my literal body when he's right there in the body. You know, I mean, that's just clearly, this was not the way anybody would have understood that. And this is my blood, the same, same uh, context. It's interesting that Jesus never asked anyone to commemorate his birth or his life or his miracles, but to commemorate his death. That's what he wanted us to be remembering. And, uh, you know, he has the meat, the bread, drink from the cup, all of you. Uh, you might remember that connection with the Catholic practice of only the priest drinking the cup, whatever they call that, I forgot the um, And then the most intriguing statement here is in 29, when he says, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What's the day when he'll drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom? I agree. I think Jesus is spiritually sharing in this meal with us as we partake on Sundays. I think we need to see this as a communion with Jesus. And so it's spiritually speaking, Jesus is sharing with us. That's what I think. I think that makes more sense to me than anything. There's other options. What's the other option? Well, one of them would be like in heaven. That's what I always thought until recently. No, I thought that would make well, any why would, you know, why would we do that in heaven? <laughs> right. Yeah, good point. <laughs> uh, no indication that we keep observing the Lord's Supper in heaven. The other option would be that he so, took it when he was resurrected on correct. the earth with correct. them. Which, I mean, you, you can make a case for a lot of things, but to me, it fits everything nicely, if you mean spiritually, as we partake. So I guess that tells them that um, the kingdom is coming within a year at least. Because <laughs> by the next time he takes it with him, well, I guess it wouldn't be the Passover then. Nah, he's not necessarily saying it'll be the Passover. Okay. Yeah. All right, anything else uh, through verse 30? They didn't have a clue what he was talking about here. No, they really didn't. He'd said enough you'd think they should have, but they don't. All right, 31 to 35. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, <coughs> I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep uh, of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter answered and said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a cock crows, you shall deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Well, it's interesting that uh, Jesus in this section pretty much outlines everything else that's going to happen in the gospel. I mean, he basically says the disciples would abandon him because when they strike down the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. He predicts the denial by Peter in verse 34. He predicts that he'll be killed. You know, I think that's the idea of striking down the shepherd in 31. 
He predicts that he'd be raised up again after I've been raised, in verse 32, and he tells about meeting the disciples in Galilee, which is what happens at the very end in chapter 28. So you could almost outline the rest of, you know, uh, the book of Matthew with things he mentions here. Um, and, and the most striking is when he says, but after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. You know, few people consciously set appointments for a few days after their death, and nobody keeps them. <laughs> you know, when you realize what Jesus is saying, it's like, you're what? <laughs> you know, uh, I'm going to die, guys, and then in a few days I want to meet you in Galilee. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's interesting. It shows Jesus absolute con- confidence in what would happen. They still don't get it. What do you think about Peter's attitude in all this? Kind of proud and self-confident. Yeah, he was very certain that he was going to do fine. He will never do this. Take, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You know, aren't we more vulnerable when we're overconfident? We were sure, oh, I would never do that. I just talked to someone very recently who has been misbehaving in a pretty serious way, and just about two or three weeks ago, they said, well, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> and they had to tell me they'd done that again. Uh, you know, it's a pretty serious thing. It's like, you know, it's easy to say I won't do this. You know, it's easy to be sure I won't. But it's another thing to carry that through. And, you know, the context is going to be different. I mean, it's see, to say that right here, where you've got all the disciples there together and everything's secure. But he's going to be in a whole different place when he's there, you know, with them trying Jesus. And he doesn't really realize what that's going to do to him. What else do you think about Peter here? It's typical of Peter. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's impetuous. What else? I always thought it's really no different than the rest of the disciples. I know, the last They all said the same thing. Yes, good point, Peter just is the spokesman. So you're right about that. I wonder if they even said the same thing um, that Peter did in 33, when he says, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. You know, if they did, I mean, that's implying, well, I could believe it about the others but it won't happen to me. You know, it's like, well, yeah, they might, but not me. Well, for any of them to think, well, I know I'm more loyal than any of the others would be, is not a very good attitude either. And he's flatly contradicting what Jesus is saying. <laughs> you know, uh, he ought to think about that one. I mean, Jesus says, even that it is written, I will strike the sheep, shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And then, you know, uh, this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he says, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. So he just flatly contradicts what Jesus just told him. Uh, is there any significance to the sign of the rooster crowing? Before the sun rises. Yes. Before at the sunrise. Yes. But he crowed twice. Yeah. I think 
it's kind of appropriate. Peter's been doing some crowing of his own right here. <laughs> I think this is kind of, uh, I think there, there may be some symbolism in that. And Peter of, really started out like that in the garden. Yes, he was willing to. I mean, so he, he started. Yeah. Well, you wonder if he was really trying to prove himself. You know, Jesus thought he would deny him. And he's ready to fight, you know. <laughs> I think I think we might do that. You know, if somebody said, Oh, no, you'll never you'll never stick up for this, then we'd be all the more determined to prove that we will. But that lasts for <laughs> a rather short time. And maybe if he'd have just been a duel he'd have done it, but <laughs> you know. Yeah, if it was just a matter of going out in a blaze of glory, he might have Yeah. Sounds like that's kind of what he had in mind. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you wonder what he had in mind, outnumbered, you know, 12 to a few thousand or whatever. You know. But it was just a little slave girl he couldn't handle it. Yeah, exactly. But it's a different context. You're right. Sometimes to fight physically like that and be the hero is easier. You know, if it was that, we might do it. I, I mean, I wonder if some of us who end up you know, being embarrassed to talk about the Lord or even really making some compromises when we're in a bad crowd. If somebody came to us and put a gun to our head and said, deny Christ, we might rise to that. We might say, no, I'm not going to deny Christ. Uh, but, but, you know, Satan likes to work in more subtle things. It kind of catches us off guard. Other thoughts? Thirty-six to forty-six. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, "Sit here while I go over there and pray." And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, "My soul is." deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond him and fell on his face praying, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed the third time, saying, the same thing once more. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. So Jesus goes with the disciples to Gethsemane has them stay while he goes on farther in the garden to pray, takes Peter, James, and John, 
and he's really upset and he tells them that he's extremely grieved and to keep watch with him and he goes a little farther and he falls down and prays. Why was Jesus so upset? what's going to happen. Well, wonder what part of what was going to happen grieved him the most. Separation from the Father. Yeah, I think drinking this cup that he talks about, which I believe is the cup of wrath, uh, that he drinks because he's bearing men's sins and, and suffering their punishment. I think that he's going to torment for us on the cross. And that, that is worse for him than even the physical pain, though the physical pain of crucifixion is horrible. I think that he's thinking about something deeper and it distresses him greatly. Um, I think it's hard for people who um, don't, um, you know, don't believe that Jesus experienced, you know, the wrath of God to explain how upset he was in the garden because there have been other like, you know, martyrs and heroes that have gone through terrible torture without being as grieved as what Jesus was here. I think the grief of Jesus is, is deeper than just it's going to hurt. I do think the pain of the crucifixion almost symbolizes the deeper distress. Um, but I think he's just really... He's really having to mentally prepare himself, almost decide, is he really going to do this? And, and he prays, my father, it's possible. Let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. I mean, he really doesn't want to do this if there's any other way. But he yields to his lifelong passion to the will of God. You know, ultimately, Jesus is determined. Whatever the will of God is, that's what he'll do. So, what happens when he comes back to the disciples? They were sleeping. Yeah. How would you feel in that situation if you were Jesus? Yeah. Why? Because they betrayed you. Yeah, that's exactly right. They really let you down. I mean, you're in the greatest need you've ever been in of companionship and and they promptly fall asleep and he told them how upset he was. I mean, can you imagine, you know, you're talking to someone about something that you're really, really, really upset about. You've told them that you're really upset and then, then you go a little bit farther and you just really, you know, you're praying and all that and, and you know, a little while later, you look up, and the person's sound asleep. Wouldn't you feel betrayed, let down? You know, like, wow, it didn't matter to you much that I was so upset, did it? You know? And three times is the same thing. That's, that's kind of a, wow, a, a letdown. I mean, the threefold failure to stay awake prefigures the threefold denial, perhaps. Um, and it really left them unprepared. They needed to pray to have strength in this crisis. And they, they weren't, and so they weren't very ready for what was about to happen. Comments and thoughts through this. 
you know, Jesus finally says, you know, it's time. Come on, let's go. And he goes forth to meet the enemy. <laughs> you know, this is not a situation where they tracked him down. He, he goes to meet them, which is amazing. It's one of those many things in which really Jesus helped him out. You know, he kind of, uh, he kind of, you know, kind of pushed this process along on some critical, at some critical moments. It almost makes you wonder if he, you know, he doesn't know the time this is supposed to happen, and it's like, no, they're not here yet. We better go find him. <laughs> you know, gotta get this thing. You know, because Jesus would have known, you know, kind of the schedule the Lord has, perhaps. It's kind of funny just to, to think about him doing that. All right, anything you want to say through 46? 47 to 56. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a large crowd, with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately Jesus went, Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? At that time Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. We already know the story, so it doesn't surprise us as much. But it might if we were reading it for the first time that there's so many people who've come to arrest Jesus. Wonder why. They've never been able to do it before when they've tried. He does seem to uh, manage to get out of uh, other predicaments. That's one thing. I think crime loves company, too. You know, if you do something evil, you feel a little better if you've got other people in it to share the guilt. You know, it may be going in mass kind of emboldens all of them. But it is. Can you imagine what a... What it would be like to be arrested by this whole mob? You know, and they've got swords and clubs, and they're probably a little rowdy and loud and... You know, I think that would be frightening in and of itself. And what's Judas's uh, high sign for them? A kiss. Yes. Wow. And and notice in, in verse 47, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve. We do not need to be told by this point that Judas is one of the twelve, do we? Haven't we figured that out by now? So why does he say Judas, one of the twelve? In fact, all, there's a lot of unnecessary times where you'll have either like Judas, one of the twelve, or Judas who betrayed him. It's, it's like he's trying to emphasize the betrayal in this. This is a terrible 
insult, you know, for one of the twelve to use a kiss to betray him. You know, and Jesus had enough of the hypocrisy. You know, he says, you know, friend, do what you've come here for. You know, cut out the, you know, the kiss. I think that would be just disgusting. I mean, I don't mean this was sensual or anything like that, but just the, the act of friendliness. It'd be like, you know, I mean, we don't kiss necessarily, but, but what about, you know, somebody who comes up eagerly and gives you a big hug, and that turns out to be the sign for everybody to attack you? That's just really gross. I mean, this hug, you know, is supposed to symbolize friendship and love and, you know, closeness. Okay. Could it be that Jesus still considered him one of the twelve? Well, he is still one of the twelve, I guess, at this point, but he's an unfaithful one. He's about to cut himself off from that by suicide. But I think, I, but I'm just saying, we know he's one of the twelve. Why does he give us that unnecessary information? Unless he's really trying to point out how outrageous it was one of the twelve. And so then, uh, you know, one of those, we know it was Peter, struck the slave of the high priest and cuts off his ear. Wonder why. He missed. <laughs> I say the guy probably ducked. You know, I'm assuming he was aiming for the neck. And if the guy ducks just right, maybe he just grabs the ear. I don't know. It's hard to imagine he was uh, really purposing an ear to me here. Uh, but what does Jesus say? Put your sword back. Because? He says it's going to have to happen according to the scriptures to be fulfilled. Yes. I mean, this is a part of the plan. So don't interfere. And does violence really work? Violence begets violence. Violence comes back on the head of the one who perpetrates it. You know, Jesus clearly did not believe in violence, even when being personally attacked or hurt or whatever. And he said, you need to put your sword back up. Those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Um, we need to develop more trust and confidence that the Lord will do for us what he wants. He'll protect us if he wants to. And Jesus says that. What could Jesus have called? That's one for every apostle. <laughs> you know, I believe a legion of angels could probably be a little more effective in protecting Jesus than a single apostle could. You know, he doesn't really need them defending him with a sword. That's the thing. God can do whatever he chooses. We're like, ah, well, what would I do? I mean, if somebody had did this, and I, what would I do? Well, what if you trusted the Lord? You know, somebody had a knife at my throat, and you know all that, and I had a gun, you know, and and well, I mean, you know, what was I supposed to do? Well, what if we just said, well, the Lord's will be done, and we continue to act in ways that are consistent with what the Lord wants? And I think it's just really impressive to see Jesus, you know, spirit in this. And we know from other passages that Jesus put the ear back on. <laughs> Makes you wonder, what in the world did they think when he did that? But isn't that like Jesus? You reattach the severed ear to one of the enemies that's coming to arrest you.
a lot of remarkable things uh, in this. But then what does Jesus say to the crowd to make them think? That's why they're coming out with all these people with weapons and says, you saw me every day in the temple and didn't arrest me, so why now? Absolutely, I think that's a good question. Why this ridiculous show of force? <laughs> you know, I mean, this doesn't make sense. They could have arrested Jesus any minute they wanted to. And I think he's trying to get them to think, you know, and reflect on what's the deal with this clandestine operation. But he said, truly, all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. You know, ultimately, all this fits in with God's plan and purpose. Not that they were intending to do that, but that's what it ended up contributing to what God did. All right, comments and questions through 56. I think if Peter wasn't confused before, he's thoroughly confused now because he thought he was doing exactly what he said that he was going to do and been accused of not going to do and then is told not to do what he thinks he was told he was not going to do. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Because in his mind, he was not denying Christ. Right. And then it's as if Christ says, no, go ahead and deny me. In Peter's mind. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure this was confusing to him because he was trying to, you know, defend Jesus and be the hero, I guess. I don't know. But, I mean, why would Jesus not want him to do that? So I, I can see that being hard for Peter to I just wonder what they thought when Judas shows up and does all that. You know, nothing's ever said about that reaction, is it? No. And I don't know if they got it. Did they realize what was going on there? I mean, it's so much easier for us when we know the whole story. But he's got this whole crowd of people with swords and... Would they not have associated Judas with... You know, I just don't know. Did they think that they had threatened him, hmm. forced him? Did they think that they followed him? I don't know. I'm just not sure. Hmm. I mean, it's... That makes sense. It, I just think it's so easy for us to... Well, yeah, Judas just sold Jesus. They knew nothing about the bargain. Hmm. I'm just not sure they would have immediately grasped that. I don't know. Because I would think Peter would go after Judas. Yeah, well, yeah, I think if he had realized, you might be right. But Judas just gives Jesus a kiss and then fades in the background. He's not one of the arresters. Yeah. And some of those things, it would be fascinating to know. But I just tried to put myself in their place. And I'm just not sure. And those things happen so fast, too. Mm -hmm. you know, they were not expecting to suddenly meet this, uh, you know, crowd of Jewish thugs. Police, <laughs> but, you know, not the same thing in Jesus' case, anyway. How many people do we? No, I don't know. I don't think we're ever told, are we? We're told how many swords, aren't we, somewhere? There's two that the disciples have. Against? Oh, okay. I, I was think thinking. we don't. Okay. I get the impression it was a sizable number. I mean, I'm thinking hundreds at least. For some reason, I thought it was like 600, but I don't know where I. Yes, yeah, something says. 
thought. Does something say that? Something says some number of like troops or some word that you then have to define what it is, you know, like, I don't know. I don't know about that one. All right, 57 to 68. And those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter also was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and he entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus in order that they might put him to death, but they did not find any even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you make no answer? What is, is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robe, saying, He is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. And they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him. And they said, Prophesy to us. You Christ, who is the one who hit you? Okay. So, they take him away to Caiaphas, who was the high priest appointed by Rome. Rome was using the high priesthood kind of politically, but Caiaphas actually stayed in office as high priest for like nearly 20 years. Uh, they had quite a succession before him. Um, and, and so, this is kind of like a trial. Peter, a long ways away, kind of follows and comes in to see, you know, Peter's kind of in the middle between courage and cowardice right here. <laughs> you know, not wanting to get too close, but kind of wanting to know what happens. So, yeah, that's where he is. And they have this trial, this council meeting. The council will be like the court, the Supreme Court, I guess you'd say. And, uh, well, what's, what's the deal with this trial? Says they kept trying to obtain false testimony. Yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming obtain means bribe. And if that's what, you, if you're paying for the testimony, why can't you get two people to tell the same story? Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is bad. They're not getting what they paid for. You know, when you fail despite bribing the witnesses, you have got a badly orchestrated case. But remember certain things about that, though. I mean, I think to some extent this seems like, well, how could this be true? Well, one thing to remember is, it was just two days before when Judas struck the bargain. They've been wanting rid of Jesus for a long time, but I don't know how far they've gotten along in really planning out what they're going to do in this situation. I'm, I'm thinking them scurrying around last We got an order. Okay, okay, can you say this? Can you say, you know? Well, here's, still, you would think, well, I mean, why don't they just accept these guys, whatever they say? Well, what I think is, I, 
I can't prove this, but I think you've got your Joseph of Arimathea and your Nicodemus and some people like that, and that they're actually trying to have a semblance of a fair trial. So I'm assuming, as they probably always did, they start cross-examining the witnesses. And the testimony breaks down. You know, it is a little difficult if you've got two different people with some made-up story and you're questioning them separately. You're going to start asking questions that they didn't, they didn't decide on. Maybe obvious questions that anybody would have known. But it's kind of hard to put together a story and then get questioned separately about it and make it consistent. And so I'm thinking that as they try to question the, the testimony to make it look good, they haven't given enough instructions to the witnesses, really. They've kind of botched this part, and they can't get two of them to actually say the same story. It's just really kind of funny. You know, they're exposed as incompetent because they, they want Jesus dead so bad they can taste it, and they can't even get two false witnesses that they're bribing to tell the same story. So that, that's, kind of, that's kind of sad. Now, what does Jesus say in response to all this? He really didn't need to anyway. I mean, you know, if the witnesses contradict each other, why do you need to talk? Um, and this is, I mean, is Jesus going to get a fair trial no matter what he does? You know, this is not exactly the kind of place where defending yourself is probably going to account for much. Um, but, but also, Jesus intended to be killed. Jesus wasn't trying to get out of it. I don't think they let him off the hook. I think that they're trying to figure out something. And they do try to figure out something here. What do they finally resort to when they can't get, you know, any pair of witnesses to agree on anything? Question Jesus. See if he'll incriminate himself. You know, they kind of despaired of being able to pay, you know, two witnesses to give consistent testimony. So they asked the faithful witness to give a testimony under oath. You know, they finally say, you know, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. To adjure him means you're putting him under oath. So it's to be understood that Jesus under oath says... You have said it yourself, kind of like, well, that's not how I would have put it, but, you know, your words. He says, nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's what Jesus affirms under oath. Well, what does the high priest do? Here is robes. Why? He's, um, um, he's like, Kind of like it's like trying to like show that show um, that he's angry. Not maybe not just angry. Really, tearing your clothes is a sign of what? Just like anguish. Just this is unbelievable. <laughs> this is horrible. They just heard the most terrible blasphemy. And it just bothers them so badly, they tear their clothes off and they go into mourning. You know, hearing Jesus say something that was that, was that you know, that just terrible. Wow, I, I would have thought they wouldn't have been that upset about it. He's got to make a big show to try to convince these people. 
this is theater. Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> this is this is hilarious. I mean, this is their break. <laughs> Finally, he incriminated himself. Whoa, lucky day. <laughs> but oh, we're horrified. You know, say people are so dishonest. I mean, they are. But I think the more I see myself and other people, it's like it is amazing how how much we lie when it's all said and done. I mean, tearing his clothes and acting like he's all horrified is absolutely an act. There is no shred of truth or genuineness in that at all. But it's part of the act. It's part of what he's trying to do to convey the point. How many times do we act instead of you know, be our, be true. I don't know, it just, just impresses me that he would do that. And of course he says, he's blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? You know, ah, he's deserving of death. You know, so they've, they've uh, duly, uh, you know, gone through all this and, uh, you know, have, have solemnly declared the horrible sentence that they they reluctantly have to uh, you know give to him. So you know, kind of kind of like that the the idea. And then what do they do with him in sixty seven and sixty eight? Spit on, slap him, abuse him. Wow. Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who's the one who hits you? But you can't tell. Man. That's just... Ah. I mean, why do they do this? This is almost their personal revenge at this point. They've been wanting to do this for a long time. They've got their chance. You know. He, he has ridiculed them and his teaching and taking away their followers and they want a chance to return the ridicule. You can see all that resentment and bitterness and jealousy all coming out right here. And and it's so ironic. Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hits you. The truth is, you know, just just right then, what Jesus predicted about Peter was fulfilled. And He's predicted the very rejection and ridicule that they're giving him right there. <laughs> That's so ironic. They're acting like, well, you're not a real prophet. You can't even tell who hit you. I mean, of all the stupid games to play anyway. And, and yet, really, they are fulfilling what he said was going to happen in the very things that they're doing. You ever, you ever been in a situation where people were attacking you and you couldn't get out of it. Maybe maybe like this or maybe verbally, you know. If you can you imagine? I mean, wow, what if it been us? They got us tied up. I mean from the other gospel they got a blindfolded and they're you know, I mean, I don't know what it would be like to get spit on in the face and, and then just you know they're just beating him. You know, they're just hitting him. I mean that's gotta hurt. And then just slapping him and say Prophesied to us, who hit you? Come on, who was it? How would that make you feel if they were doing it to you?
why do we get angry about those things? How do we feel? It's unjust. Yeah, and we're hurt. When we feel hurt, we get angry. Almost, it's almost we get angry so we don't cry. You know, and you know, if, if, if it was us in a crowd like this, and we were by ourselves, just what are you going to do about it? <laughs> you know, you can't beat them all up. But we know with Jesus, he could have beat them all up too. You know, what about those 12 legions, you know, that he had at his disposal? He could have. I mean, man, I would have liked to have, you know, taken the hands that were slapping me and, and you know, I don't know, twist their fingers off or something. You know, take their tongues and yank them out of their mouths. I mean, I can imagine being infuriated. Jesus wasn't. Jesus could have. He did not. Jesus stays calm. I mean, Jesus' willingness to take injustice and abuse and a violation of his rights like nobody's ever had their rights violated before because nobody else has ever been totally innocent before. It's just amazing. And you see that all through this. But I'm just always amazed. You know, it's just always like, man, I, I would have had to take it because I would have been able to deal with it. I couldn't have done anything about it. But if I could have, wow, that would have been really satisfying. And Jesus didn't take advantage of it. Questions or comments? Like, he could have done that without even ruining the whole plan. Like, right. he could have just given them a bit of punishment and then carried on with it, you know, but he didn't do anything. Now what about a good electric shock if we have to hit him? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, get a little revenge. Yeah. Or at least tell them who did hit them and, you know, just put that little sliver of doubt in their minds. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Not let them sleep that night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, tell them who hit them and read the pedigree while they're at it. <laughs> Yeah, he would have known. Hmm. Now, let's see, you're, uh, you're shacked up with somebody after your fifth marriage, uh, you <laughs> know, or whatever it would have been. Can you imagine what it would have been like if Jesus had done it? But he's not trying to do it. Jesus totally concentrated on fulfilling his Father's will and going through all this to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So that's just really, you know, it's really always amazing to see Jesus. But I, I don't think there's much that just is more impressive and Jesus' willingness to endure this when he could have done anything. The stuff it? they end up using as against him is things he's been saying all along. And I don't think they're really thrilled with the amount of evidence they have. It's not what they were looking for. They, they tried the false witnesses to come up with something really bad that they could take to the uh, the Romans, I guess, to get the conviction that they needed from them. Yes. Uh, but even in 61, they act like that's a major uh, revelation. They finally get two people that say the same thing and, and quote something that he said. And so they're like, well, what do you answer to this? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, we've got two people that say, you said you could destroy the temple. How terrible. Yeah, yeah. And one of the other Gospels says even in that, their testimony was not totally consistent. <laughs> and that actually happened. Like, yeah, 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 he did say that, not meaning what they meant. Right. Right. Very good. All right, well, why don't we stop here? And we'll work on 69. I should be.